0: What? Oh my goodness! (laughs) Wow! Oh my god! What is that? Wow! Oh my
1: god! Radiolab. Whoa! Adventures on the edge of what we think we know.
0: I'm Lauren. And I'm Hannah, and this is BioEats World, our podcast where we talk about all the ways our ability to engineer biology and re-engineer healthcare is transforming the future.
1: We've talked in previous
0: episodes about how genomics is making the jump from the lab into the clinic, such as the episodes on polygenic risk scores and superscaling COVID testing. But we haven't talked quite as much about the very human side of this, what it's like for patients to have genomic sequencing done, and how our ability to sequence full genomes is becoming a part of the patient experience. In this conversation, Stanford professor Ewan Ashley, geneticist, cardiologist, author of the new book, The Genome Odyssey, and first co-chair of the Undiagnosed Diseases Network, talks with me about one of the first places that genomic sequencing began to dramatically impact patients' lives and those of their families around them in rare disease. We talk about some of the most perplexing medical mysteries they encountered and how they solved the hardest cases in genomics with old fashioned detective skills, along with cutting edge tools and technologies. We also talk about the lessons learned from the world of rare disease that we can use to impact our knowledge and our treatment of those with common disease. The conversation begins with Ashley describing the first time genomic sequencing brought him a patient.
1: For me personally, the story began with this meeting with uh, Steve Quake, who was my colleague at the time, a bioengineer who'd invented a method of sequencing, and he had sequenced his own genome, Mm -hmm. and he was about the fifth person in the world to do that. So this was around 2009, and I was actually meeting him in his office to talk about a genomics seminar that we were running at Stanford. And he sort of shuffled me over to his uh, monitor and showed me the screen and said, take a look at this. And basically on the screen was a a variant call file, basically an old HTML uh, table of a whole bunch of of variants. And this is just kind of mind blowing for me at the time, because I was used to sending genetic testing from my clinic that took, you know, four months to come back three or four months. It cost $5,000. And that would be what would get you sequencing of three genes. And here suddenly he was showing me literally his whole genome on the screen. Uh, but as I started talking to him about some of the genes he showed me on the screen, which I was familiar with and which mm-hmm. were associated with inherited heart disease, uh, I realized he had a pretty significant history of inherited heart disease. And he basically became my patient.
0: So he wasn't yet a patient for heart disease?
1: No. In fact, his family had been bugging him, telling him to go. He should go and see someone because of the family history. But he didn't have any personal symptoms. So he he hadn't yet got around to finding a cardiologist. I walked in to have a conversation with a scientific collaborator and I walked out essentially with a patient.
0: As his doctor. As his
1: doctor, (laughs) yeah.
0: So where was the next kind of moments where you started to see this with patients in your practice?
1: Well, I think naively we thought, well, you know, in a few years, everyone's going to have their genome sequenced. And we really expected that, you know, a year later there would be thousands of people and then tens and then millions and and Mm -hmm. on from there. But in reality, it happened more gradually. Uh, what happened, though, was that rare disease became the clear uh, first use case for genome or, or exome scale sequencing, exome being the the 2% of the genome that contains all the genes.
0: Mm-hmm. You start the book with this one particular story about a baby and a rare disease. Was that the earliest moment where you sort of started to see the power for patients of of what this could do?
1: The next few genomes that we did, we had to start to think, well, if you had genome information from a whole family, how would that impact the way you interpret different family members, the overlap that they have in their genetic information? And then after that, we looked at 10 patients in a clinic. And so this was a primary care clinic where we worked with general practitioners to say, well, what would this look like if you had patients walking in with their genomes? Right. And so we've kind of rehearsed through the different steps and thinking about what a whole genome might bring. Before the point that, that thinking about genome or, or the exome in relation to patients with rare genetic disease, it really came up. And those two things were happening. We started to come across, of course, these patients who'd started to move from doctor to doctor, who'd had many, many different genetic tests and had never found answers. And they were accumulating mountains of paperwork, all sorts of emotional and financial challenge over that time and had just not found an answer. And so it occurred to many of us at the time that maybe this new technology of genome sequencing or exome sequencing could start to provide answers for those patients.
0: So that is a big chunk of what this book is, is sort of taking us through some of the medical mysteries in this as a lens, right, of what all this new information could give us. So can you walk us through one of those medical mysteries and how it was resolved?
1: Yeah, of of course. One of the ones that I think is illustrative of a few different uh, parts is of a couple of uh, young uh, boys called Carson and Chase, and they were born to Danny and Nikki Miller. And uh, Carson was, was born first. And at the beginning, he, his development was normal. But sometime around a year, uh, Danny and, and Nikki noticed that his motor development was actually lagging behind. Cognitively, intellectually, mm-hmm. he was doing fine. But instead of starting to stand up and walk around, uh, he was actually moving a little bit backwards and going back more to cruising and then sitting and maybe being less able to, to feed himself. If you imagine, as, as a parent, just an incredibly worrying situation. And yeah. First thing you go you go to your GP and then you go, perhaps uh, you're referred to a nutritionist or an, a neurologist. And then from there to a, from a local neurologist to a regional neurologist. And then every evening they were trying to find answers on, on the Internet, spending hours and hours uh, early into the, the wee hours of the morning. Uh, they had no answers at the time that Carson's little brother, uh, Chase, was born. Uh, And he followed a very similar route. He he developed normally at first and then uh, stalled. And so they were facing a situation increasingly where both these boys were clearly suffering the same condition and they had no answers. They'd been given a label of uh, cerebral palsy at one point, which really isn't to say anything about what the underlying condition is. Right. Right. And so by this time, they've seen, I think, four different neurologists. And at this point, they heard of our undiagnosed diseases network. So this is a network that grew out of a center at the NIH in late uh, 2000s and became now a a network across the country and even across the world. We're connected internationally um, of doctors who try to solve the hardest cases in medicine using tools of genomics and, and any other cutting edge approaches that might help really anything that could help solve the case. And Danny heard about the Undiagnosed Diseases Network and asked his neurologist to refer the family there. And so we first met the whole family uh, just a few years ago.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting when you think about how our system works, that that ends up being, you know, kind of on the patient's responsibility in some ways when you're really lost, right?
1: No, this is exactly right. And I think from our perspective, as the people, uh, part of it, many of us went into medicine thinking that we would spend a lot of time solving, right. trying to solve medical mysteries and trying to help people who have nowhere else to turn And We certainly do that. But in regular medicine, we don't do that very much. Actually, much of medicine is quite protocolized. Yeah, We follow fairly standard protocols, which are, is important because, you know, that's where the evidence is. And uh, we, we should follow the results of randomized controlled trials and follow the evidence base. There isn't a lot of room, and nor should there be, for creativity within most of medicine. However, rare disease medicine is very different, and that's a place where you need to use maximum creativity. You need to max out every thought process you have, every skill you have in, in understanding the medical presentation from all the classical skills you learned at a medical school of uh, examination, taking a history, thinking about the family history. Uh, but one of the amazing things about the Undiagnosed Diseases Network is every patient who comes in, has, has, and every family who comes in, essentially, has their genome sequenced. And so we, we have, on the one hand, this very traditional medical approach, but on the other, absolute cutting-edge uh, technology available. And it's not just genome sequencing. That's, that's the centerpiece, and that really provides most of the answers. Uh, but really, any uh, testing that can be done in a research lab can be applied to help solve these medical mysteries.
0: Well, and that's where the creativity must come in again, right? Where you're just thinking about any possibility at all, right? You're in the world of faint possibilities already. So that's right.
1: We live live in a world of rare. Yes. Yeah. There's this phrase: if you if you hear hoofbeats in Central Park, you know, think horses, not zebras. It's a very mm-hmm. famous medical axiom. And that's what we teach our medical students. We don't want them heading off into the direction of rare. But in the world we live in, with undiagnosed diseases, we live in a in, in a world of zebras, basically. It's, and so um, so that's what we're looking for.
0: So let's go back to the story of Carson and Chase. So so that Danny came to you, and had an idea that perhaps it might be a fa- something genetic, but right. didn't, because of the two, because they were both experiencing the same symptoms, but knew not much more than that.
1: Yes, exactly. Uh, The tests so far had not brought anything uh, up. And in fact, they'd even had uh, an exome sequence at that point and had not found the answer. But coming into the undiagnosed diseases network, we do have tools that aren't available in the regular clinic. And one of them is being able to do full genome sequencing. So not just the genes, but rather the other 98% of the genome we can sequence too. The other advantage we have is that whereas our healthcare system is, of course, very focused on the single individual who has the health insurance and therefore to whom the bill will be sent, we can actually do much more powerful things like sequence the entire family.
0: Oh, interesting. Interesting.
1: And this was something that we found from the earliest days, actually the the, the second four genomes, if you like, the genomes two to five that we looked at from a medical perspective were all from one family.
0: It's so funny that that's not even, I mean, it just seems like a total no brainer that you'd want to start with understanding the entire constellation when it's clearly something that's a family condition, but that our system isn't set up to pay for that.
1: It's not, even when it's very clear in the end that there's huge cost effectiveness from doing that. But it's very clear that sequencing multiple family members just provides a significant, more, significantly more power for diagnosis and discovery. And that was exactly what happened here, because it's not that the exome that Carson had previously had failed. It's simply that the information that was required to make the diagnosis wasn't available in the exome, and it wasn't available unless you had all four family members, in this case, the two parents and the two boys. Hmm. And what we were able to do, essentially, using computer algorithms, of course, that are much more focused then, because we have four genomes, is say, well, show me the variants that are present in both boys that are on- either only present in one uh, parent or another, or or aren't even present in-, in either parent. And so it's a very different situation from when you've only got one uh, kid, uh, and you in that case, you also only have the genes. And so another important thing is that just on the other side of, of gene, each gene is a regulatory portion that can be really fundamental. In fact, each individual component of a gene called an exon can, can al- also has a, a start and an endpoint. And if you disrupt the starting and endpoint for those individual pieces, you can then disrupt the overall protein product that would happen at the end. Mm-hmm. And an exome tends to focus just on those individual portions and doesn't really go too far into what we call the non-coding region of the genome. Right. So one of the many advantages of the whole genome is you really do get everything. In this case, it was that one variant that was in a regulatory region. And then also the fact that we had the parents that allowed us to find a specific gene where each individual parent had one variant each and each boy got both the variants. So both their copies of this particular gene mm. called, called mecker were, were disrupted.
0: And that was the key.
1: And that was the key here, yeah, to solving the condition. And one other really important part is that the freedom of, of movement of data across the world, and by that I mean both genetic data, so that uh, individuals with particular genetic variants or genes that are uh, felt to be connected to a different condition, Um, can be shared across the world but also really importantly uh, the phenotype or or the presenting symptoms and signs of the individual patients sharing that information is critical too uh, because in the end what helped us solve this was that there were seven cases uh, of a condition that is now called MEPAN syndrome uh, where again two variants in in, uh, each copy of this one gene were found in these seven individuals and And there was indeed a paper that we were able to find that had been published just a year or two before that described those seven individuals. And when we lined up the presenting symptoms and signs of those seven individuals, they were identical, almost identical to those from Carson and Chase. And so we could be really confident that this was the answer.
0: So you need all pieces of the puzzle. You need the family, you need the symptoms, and you need the full genetic sequencing. Was there anything else that you needed as that you saw as a key part of the puzzle, or are those the pillars?
1: Those are the, the key parts. and when we think of, of making the diagnosis, and um, when we look at all the uh, undiagnosed diseases network patients together, we find that those are the recurrent themes.
0: So what happened with this family? So this was a new syndrome that had not yet really been identified. Where, where did that what's, Where did that leave the family, this new understanding?
1: Well, yeah, so Carson and Chase were the eighth and ninth boys to be diagnosed with this condition. So it was mm-hmm. very new, still single digits. Uh, but what, what it meant was uh, that we, first of all, had, had a name and that then they had a, a community that they could speak to and work with. The answer is, is just a huge step forward. For them, knowing what the shape and size of the enemy is means they now have a target.
0: But do you know with something so new, you know what the cause is, what the shape and size of the enemy in terms of the cause, but how much do you know about how it will continue or progress or what you do as a result of that? How does it change treatment going forward?
1: Well, and that's certainly the most common question that uh, medical professionals ask. You know what, what is the actionability? In this example, it also gives us an understanding now of, of the mechanism of their condition and the mechanism of their disease, which means we can start to target therapies potentially towards it. And there's an interesting story here because this is a, a quite unusual um, mitochondrial uh, pathway. So the mitochondria being the, the power units of the cells. And what we were able to do was narrow down the mechanism of their condition to the specific pathway in the mitochondria. I think of it a bit like a a factory uh, sometimes, essentially, where uh, each factory worker does their part and then passes the part down the the factory assembly line. And in this case, if you think of one factory worker being off sick, then this is essentially what happens when that gene is disrupted. Essentially, all the parts prior to that factory line worker pile up and then nothing, nothing goes downstream. And so if once you understand where the problem is and, and what is building up uh upstream and what is therefore not available downstream, you can start to target therapies. Now, if you had a, a gene therapy, which is increasingly the case, then you could put that gene therapy in the right place at the right time. And that would obviously be the best possible answer, solve the question, mm-hmm. essentially pull Fix in the a factory
0: new, line and right, pull in a new smoothly. factory, yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. Pull in a new factory worker and the, the line is back on. But short of that, and that isn't available for for everyone yet, of course, you could start to to add in kind of ready-made parts downstream. And one of those parts that's really important is is something called alpha lipoic acid. And the interesting thing is that is a supplement that you can buy online. So literally, Danny Miller was able to go online and buy the supplement that could Amazing. help his kid's devastating neurological disease, essentially on Amazon, and it arrived in a box, you know, at his house.
0: I mean, that sounds like almost That's an almost ideal outcome for a mystery diagnosis like that to both immediately address it in some way and understand more of the of the cause.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think about a third of the time we are actually able to find specific therapies as a result of identifying the cause.
0: That's incredible. So when we if we go back to that moment in time and it's one of these first experiences for you of understanding how genomics and this family picture could elucidate entirely new dark corners of rare diseases. What would you say was the bigger learning beyond the family that you took forward into the next time you had a mystery to solve?
1: Well, I think at some level, every single mystery is its own. We call it N of one, just mm-hmm. being, it's um, it's just a, a common phrase. But there are, of course, learnings that we can take uh, that, that pass and, and help educate us and help us improve our hit rate as we go forward. And so sometimes we get to a diagnosis even without a genome. That's, that's not common, but 10% of the time we take the so-called Sherlock Holmes approach. A lot of Sherlock Holmes was actually inspired uh, by Conan Doyle, the author who was actually an ophthalmologist. He was a doctor and he based the character of Sherlock Holmes on a surgeon who was particularly adept at observing his patients. And uh, so in fact, a lot of the approach to solving mysteries that we find in Sherlock Holmes are, are actually inspired by medical mysteries.
0: That's so cool.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and when we think about solving medical mysteries to this day, we, we do think about parallels with the sort of detective approach of Sherlock Holmes. And so about 10 percent of the time we can solve the cases Without reference to this brand new technology, just with reference to our traditional skills of taking a history, doing an examination, thinking carefully, bringing experts in from wherever they may be, um, but but actually three quarters of the time we make a diagnosis by using the genome.
0: So okay, so I'm tr- what I'm trying to understand is, of course, every every disease by in this world we're talking about is n of one, and you're learning you know huge new things about that particular disease or problem. But in the evolution of how genomics, where is the next moment where you felt like there was something, the ground shifted and the, the landscape, you know, you learned something about how to do all of that, how to pull all of that in for patients in a new way.
1: An important thing to, to remember is that rare disease is individually rare, but collectively common. So actually one mm. in 15 people has a rare disease, one in 15. So, so that's almost as common as diabetes. If you yeah. think about rare disease as a, as a group. And when you have a test like a genome, you should think of rare disease like like a group because you can apply this tool to all those people. But of course, we are interested in how we learn from the the tools and technologies that we apply to rare disease uh, for for the other, if you like, 85% of people who might suffer the regular conditions like cancer, like coronary artery disease and heart attacks and high blood pressure. And so there are many lessons, I think, from the world of rare disease that we can use to impact our knowledge and our treatment of those with common disease. Information sharing is absolutely one of them. We've learned that whether it's the genomics of rare disease where we're sharing individual presentations of individual patients across continents, or we're sharing their genetic data across continents so that we've said this gene, there's now a a website called Matchmaker Exchange where uh, essentially you can upload data from patients and uh, essentially share it with the world and the, the system will essentially match if you find a particular gene that's associated with a particular symptom or sign, it will match and then essentially make a connection across the world uh, for, for you to potentially connect with another uh, doctor and patient who may have found the same gene of the same presentation. So that data sharing, I think, is, is a real revelation that we've had within the world of rare disease that we now apply, of course, to our uh, use and application of the genome to common disease. There will be a time, I think, when we have readily available genetic therapies. Uh, at the moment, uh, individualized genetic therapies, of course, are, are some time away. Uh, but just identifying the cause can take us to a point where actually 80% of the time we have an, an action. Sometimes it's it's changing things for the family. Sometimes it's stopping the whole diagnostic odyssey. Yeah. And about a third of the time, it's a specific therapy. But if there isn't a specific therapy at that time, then we do continue to work on it and think about either repurposing agents that can be used. We've had families who've, who've worked with scientific teams. So often the families form a foundation, they start to raise money, so they start to be able to fund science in this specific area that the family's condition is, is in. So they go find the scientists who can help them get to answers, and those answers can sometimes be, well, we can repurpose this very common medication that's already approved and has been through FDA approval, and we can use it for this new indication. Uh, and so, there's there's got a few examples of of where that's also been helpful.
0: So, in this kind of feedback loop of you know new tools equals new knowledge equals new therapies um, and the ability to to make new diagnoses that we wouldn't have before. How is this knowledge moving beyond just the area of rare disease and how do you see it affecting the general population? And then what are the new tools that are where you see us, where you see that impact happening today?
1: Well, What I've seen is an elevation of interest from the pharmaceutical industry and the biotechnology industry in attacking rare disease. And that's, Mm. that's very welcome. I think in the recent past, the idea was, well, it just was too expensive, too costly to develop drugs that we needed to go after really common disease so that we got blockbuster cholesterol drugs and we, we got drugs for high blood pressure because we knew there were millions of people who would take those. But I think the value proposition has changed, over, especially over the last 10 years, where we now see a number of companies starting that are attacking, in some cases, very specific rare diseases where there might only be tens of individuals or hundreds of individuals who might benefit from that disease. But the point, and this is why we sometimes call it precision medicine, is that really understanding the underlying genetic basis of the disease can mean we can develop a drug that is specific for that disease and therefore can have a much more significant impact, albeit on a smaller number of people, but a very dramatic impact on a small number of people arguably is as good as a small impact on a large number of people. And so it's great to see both of those represented across biotechnology and across uh, pharmaceutical development. And I think that that can then inform, each of those can can inform the other. Uh, Because I think that what rare disease has taught us is that the genome is is large and that the variants that cause disease can be either very large, causing rare genetic disease, or very small, but there can be very many of them. So we're in a world now where you can put together a polygenic risk score, which might have uh, a small uh weighting from millions of variants across the whole genome, but that those small weightings together add up eventually right. to a, a moderate effect that can either change one of those big effect variants or can stand on, on its own to push your risk up or down of a common disease.
0: But what I'm thinking while you're talking is but is what a privilege it is to have you know the, the resource of this kind of network in in a kind of desperate situation and how many resources and new tools it is that get roped in. So, what? How do we? How would you scale something like this? You know, if rare disease is not at all rare in aggregate, how do we make the entire healthcare system capable of this kind of intervention and understanding?
1: Yeah, no, that's a really important question, and the way we think of it is like a, a trickle-down effect. In fact, because within the network, we can avail ourselves of really any technology anywhere. So, for example if we think that this might be an autoimmune condition, we can potentially sequence the immune cells. That's not something that's anywhere close to being a standard of care or anywhere close to being any kind of clinical application yet. But because we are funded in this unique way by the National Institutes of Health, we're we're able to do that. But this is also how how genome sequencing started. It's now fairly fairly routinely available that you can get an exome test in, in a genetics clinic. And that was not the case when we started. So I do think that uh, networks like the UDN, while we we don't have massive capacity, we we do our best to see as many patients as we can. But what we can do, I think, then is is by demonstrating what the -the state-of-the-art technology can do for these rare conditions, start to spread the word and spread the tools and, and spread the mechanisms that we use out into the regular clinics so that there can be rural genetics clinics where Uh, rural families can avail themselves of of this kind of technology.
0: Where else are new state-of-the-art tools coming in that are changing, you know, your arsenal entirely and beginning to open up new areas of rare disease research and understanding for you?
1: Yeah, I think anything that is changing science is at some point going to be relevant for uh, rare disease and eventually common disease uh, diagnosis. And so one particular area that we have used in in a couple of stories that I talk about in the book uh, is single cell biology. Mm. And so uh, one of the little a little baby who presented um, to our intensive care unit, actually she presented when she was still in utero. So she was 36 weeks of gestation and she seemed to have a low heart rate. And she did indeed uh, come to Stanford and was delivered by cesarean and had a low heart rate by 70 beats per minute, which is about half what it would be for a term baby. We realized at the time she had a particularly severe form of long QT syndrome. So that's a genetic condition of the electrical activation of the heart. And her resetting of the heart after each beat was so long that it was blocking the next beat. And so uh, basically, essentially, uh, she actually had several um, cardiac arrests on the first few days of her life. But we also realized that long QT syndrome is a genetic condition. And if we could Mm -hmm. sequence her genome fast, we could get an answer and start to provide precision therapy. And so uh, at the time, the fastest genomes were being done by Steve Kingsmore, who at the time was in Kansas. He'd worked with Illumina, the sequencing company, to bring what used to be months down to weeks and then to days. Uh, And so we used their technology, partnered with Illumina, the clinical lab, and and even knocked some time off the the computational pipeline while we were waiting to get an answer in in just two days. And in her case, what we found uh, was that uh, not only did she have a a variant that explained the long QT, but that it was present in only 10% of her cells. You know, we normally used to think of that as as 50-50 of two copies of each gene. What you look for is a variant that's either uh, both copies are affected or a single copy is affected. Well, what was confusing about her case is that only 10% of her cells in her body were affected. She actually had something called somatic mosaicism, which is to say she was a mosaic, which is to say 10% of her genome was of one form, that was predisposing to long QT and the other 90% of cells were a different form. And so single cell biology then came into use. In fact, we worked again with Steve Quake, who'd also, uh, and founding Fluidigm had been part of the single cell revolution. So here's another area where cutting edge science could be applied uh, to help solve a case. We ended up taking advantage of the fact that heart cells and blood cells come from the same origin. So we took a blood sample, and then flowed them down, and, and literally did single cell genomics, and worked out that ten percent of her cells were of one genome, and ninety percent were the other.
0: It sounds like a scientific feat in and of itself, you know, understanding that what percentage exactly?
1: Yeah, and it's it's interesting that, that we we had one version uh from the DNA from her blood, we did it from saliva. We then were able to flow these individual single cells, and then in the end, and she's doing very well now. She ended up with a heart transplant, but at the time of her transplant, we were able to take a tiny piece of her old heart and also then demonstrate exactly within the heart, uh, Mm. which cells and what percentage of cells had one genome versus another. We worked uh, with Natalia Trianova, a colleague and friend of mine at Johns Hopkins, who's the world's, really one of the world's leading uh, molecular computational modelers of the heart. So she actually built a computer model of this little baby's heart that modeled not just the two genomes, but the actual electrical signal that we quantified in cells was created by the mutation in this particular ion channel. So she essentially created a 3D model uh, wow. that contracted and was electrically activated in real time that also then recapitulated this low heart rate that we'd seen when she was first referred to us when she was still in, in, in utero.
0: So what are you looking for now? I'm thinking of this like, you know, Sherlock Holmes model and, you know, is the case itself always the kind of seed of this journey or are there other areas where the tool itself is driving pattern match tools plus cases? Like, is there a way in which the flow works differently like that and it's driven by the tool?
1: Your question touches on a really interesting vision, I think, that many of us had for the future, which is this about this data sharing. That at the moment, it's, it's either very intentional uh, or accidental when we find the second case. right? Uh, and I, I think what we want to do is get to a situation where that is happening almost automatically. I mean, we are accumulating now at a rapid rate patients with genomes. In many cases, we find answers, which is great. In many cases, we don't. But what needs to happen is that all that data needs to be shared automatically, everywhere, safely, with privacy, Uh, But in a way, in a federated way, that means we can start to make those connections automatically in the background. I look forward to a day where, you know, I get up and the the big computer in the sky has basically connected and solved three cases overnight because another, you know, thousand genomes were uploaded uh, from a lab in Australia uh, and they were connected to ones in Russia. And then there's a patient in South America and they all have a, a hit in the same gene. And so we can then use the power of global data sharing. In order to help solve these cases and that that happens essentially in the background rather than as it is at the moment where we have to intentionally go and look up each one or mm-hmm. we're relying on this serendipity where people bump into each other. at
0: Right, which is another. So data is another massive way to scale.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So we've been talking a lot about cases that reached a real resolution for the parents and for kind of your understanding of what was happening. Are there cases? Can you tell us some of the cases where you're still where things really remain in the dark and what how you're thinking about
1: those? Yeah, we're excited to, to solve, you know, more than a third of these cases that, <clears throat> that make it all the way into our, our network. But what do we do for the other two thirds of patients? And so we're always really open to what new technologies might bring us. And one particularly interesting new technology is long read sequencing. We're used to so-called short read sequencing from Illumina that has been incredibly powerful, really the engine of the genome revolution, where the DNA segments are that are sequenced are basically cut up into segments about 150 letters long. And so if you try to imagine putting together the jigsaw of the genome when you have pretty small pieces, Mm -hmm. that can definitely be done, especially with computer help. But imagine now instead of the jigsaw having, you know, 10,000 pieces, you had a jigsaw with more like five or 10 pieces suddenly becomes much easier. And that's a little bit like what we have with long read sequencing where the individual DNA pieces are more like 15,000, 20,000 letters long. And so one of the cases that had been unsolved with the The short read technology was a patient of mine, uh, Ricky, who was just one of the most remarkable individuals. We first met him when he transitioned from the pediatric clinics. He was about 18. He's tall, he had a big smile, uh, dressed all in black. But when we looked at his heart on the screen, what we saw was that he had two large tumors essentially bobbing around in the middle of his heart. Mm. And um, that is not normal. In fact, that's very unusual. And uh, it's not something that we're used to seeing even in in my clinic where we see quite a lot of rare disease. It turned out a condition called Kearney complex, or at least clinically, it appeared very clear that's what he had. Uh, But when we looked at the gene that caused Kearney complex, we didn't find anything. But then it occurred to us that it might be a larger segment change. Oftentimes the answer is literally one letter change or maybe one letter in each copy of a gene. Right. But sometimes the answer is actually like a large segment or a larger segment of the genome is either inserted or deleted, maybe thousands of base pairs. And so so one of the advantages of of the long read approach is that we can pick up these larger segments a bit more uh, precisely and a bit more accurately. So it's like
0: zooming out.
1: Correct. Yeah, exactly like that. And so we worked with a a company in Silicon Valley here uh, called Pacific Biosciences, and we sequenced uh, Ricky's genome using the long read approach. And of course, this was the first time we'd really applied this to a patient. And so the team were really working on the pipeline kind of for the first time. I mean, we'd been there 10 years ago with the short reads, but we were just trying to think, how do we reproduce this for this new technology? Uh, But as we used the filter to to essentially come down, uh, how many overall insertions and deletions are there in the genome? That was thousands. If we narrow it to genes we know or areas that cover the genes we know, what does that narrow it down to? And then eventually we just had a handful of genes and we kind of opened the box to look at them and staring at us right in the face was this gene, the gene that was known to cause this exact condition that he had. And what it was was that 2,000 base pairs Was deleted from from one of his copies of that gene, and this is what was causing the cardiac tumors, the other tumors, the skin changes. But it had been invisible to us from the the short read approach. But it was it was barn door right in front of us, staring us in the face with the long read approach.
0: How how often will that kind of approach be a game changer like that? Do you see that being a key new way to look at the whole system?
1: I think it's a really exciting new technology. I think, of course, we don't know yet how often we'll provide answers. I think we're excited that we could, might be able to solve, I don't know, another 10% of cases using, using this tool. It's certainly true that we're really just now getting our, our arms around the full genome, being able to really understand the whole thing. Uh, and that, that these kinds of technologies, I think are going to, going to be part of that for sure.
0: So how about, I wonder if we can get back to Sherlock Holmes and this is kind of a wacky question. You may not be able to answer it, but um, you know, if we think back to the surgeon that Sherlock Holmes was based on and the tools of the trade then and the tools of the trade now that you're beginning to use or that are coming on the horizon. What do you think this job looks like 10 years from now? I mean, and as far forward as you can think, you know, how do you think this particular kind of detective medical detective work will dramatically transform in ways that we your average person might not have thought of yet?
1: Yeah, I think essentially high throughput science is coming to all aspects of medical diagnosis. And so Mm. I think that we'll never lose that traditional approach where you think carefully and you watch the scene, you you inspect the crime scene and you think carefully and you make hypotheses and you test them. But I think that the tools we have, if you like, the magnifying glass of, of Sherlock Holmes is now going to be genome sequencing it's going to be right. immune cell sequencing it's going to be full proteomic uh, uh, characterization it's going to be the ability to really understand our immune system at a level that we we haven't been able to and i think parsing all that data and bringing it to the the door of the of the sherlock holmes investigator for these medical mysteries
0: so that it's there before you even begin asking the questions to your earlier point about the data yeah
1: that, that's exactly right. And I think that many of the cases will, n- none of them will solve themselves, but I think we can start with a short list of answers at the moment that you're seeing the patient, rather than at this being months and months of a medical odyssey for the, the patients and the families who, uh, you know, have this emotional hardship that is really just hard to, to even understand.
0: So shortening the journey and hopefully making it end in a better place.
1: <laughs> I think that's exactly it. Yeah. I mean, many of the patients talk about undiagnosed island because they really feel isolated on that island. They don't mm-hmm. have a community. They don't have a name. They don't know what they're aiming their fire at. Uh, but being able to provide the diagnosis is the first step in coming off that island. And then they can start to, to bring the armies together, finding out where to, to hit the condition and how best to, to provide a cure.
0: That's beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us on BioEats World. Thanks so much for joining us on BioEats World. If you'd like to hear more about all the ways biology is technology, please go subscribe to the A16Z bio newsletter at a16z.com slash newsletter. And of course, subscribe to BioEats World anywhere you listen to podcasts.